welcome to the Petro Nerds Podcast with your hosts, Trisha Curtis, CEO of Petro Nerds, and Ethan Bellamy. This show combines upstream and midstream expertise in a Rocky Mountain showdown, brought to you by Digital Wildcatters. All right. Hello, everyone, um, and welcome to the Petroners Podcast. Today is a Monday, October 18th, 2021. Uh, WTI is hovering around $83 a barrel. Henry Hub has slipped a bit, and we're looking at $515 right now. Uh, and I am extremely pleased to announce my guest today is, is Mark Rossano. He's uh, wildly intelligent. And if you're looking for a nerdy podcast, this is definitely going to be the one. Because I think the first time I talked to Mark, we had scheduled a half an hour phone call and it went two hours. I still didn't even figure out where he worked exactly or what he did, and nor did he necessarily find out what I did. We ended up just talking about China and the market. And I don't even know if we got into China. We just nerded out on a number of things and barely even touched on it. So we will not do two hours today for the listeners, um, <laughs> but we will cover some, we're going to cover some ground. And there's a few things I'd like to talk about. Part of it is that. I don't know if you've, you've listened to a couple of the previous podcasts, but you've probably seen there's an energy crisis going on and an energy crunch. Um, and there's a lot of stuff going on with China. So I think I'd like to touch on that with you because I know you're familiar with that stuff. I would yeah. like to dabble in the IEA stuff a little bit, although I will follow up with that in future podcasts on, on the World Energy Outlook. Um, but there's no, if there's a chance to uh, you know talk about that, it's always important, especially with someone else. And then I think we're going to start, though, and talk about the rigs uh, and frack spreads and the micro stuff in the U.S., which I love and, and don't often have a person that can really um, talk, uh, go back and forth on these details a bit. But with all that being said, I would love to give you a chance to introduce yourself and your company. I know you're with C6. You're the CEO of C6 Capital, correct? Yep. Awesome. So can you tell us a little bit about that and just give us give us like a 30 second background on you? Sure. I know you well, have a lot to offer. <laughs> well, thanks for having me. It's it's an absolute pleasure to be on. Uh, so the one that we, we do three different buckets. Uh, one is we have a private equity fund where we invest in everything from re renewable green uh, solutions, as well as fossil fuels. It's one of the few where we like to say and and not or it's it's a basket approach, not a uh, one or the other. So that's one of the things right now we're actually, I'm actually going up to New Hampshire this uh, this weekend to look at some potential investments where we're looking at some hydro dams. Uh, then we also do consulting where we just provide, uh, you know, consulting services going across the supply chain or what we like to call well to wheel. And then on the other side, for those that have not seen the show, I'm the host and uh, co-founder of Primary Vision Network, where we look at EIA data, global oil and uh, refined products as well as macroeconomics. And then as we're gonna start off this conversation, the, the primary vision for act spread count and where we talk about what's the uh, US completions and then a quick summary of what happened uh, in the world that week. Awesome. So we should be shocked that you haven't asked me to come on your podcast. So that, that, <laughs> soon. Week, you know, that, that, that will be that'll soon. Happen. That'll happen now. Um, so we'll make sure that happens. I'll, I'll send you a Petronerd sticker and I got to get some more mugs. It's got to be a thing where I got to start getting people these Petronerd mugs. But um, so I need to get on the podcast. And yeah, so primary, all, all that's super awesome. I would, you should comment when we get into the China stuff, I would like to end this energy crunch. The hydro thing is really, um, is really interesting. I, I definitely think there's a role for hydro. It's not, it's not well understood, but it, it is certainly a piece of this, uh, this energy crunch that people are mentioning within within Europe and in Brazil mm -hmm. and in China, but they're not actually mentioning the wind stuff. And I think that I I personally think there's definitely a reason for that uh, politically. Uh, but anyways, with all that with all that being said, and given we know the market's going crazy, and and if you saw the market last night, I mean energy prices are just going higher. Um, I China can't missed on their uh, China missed on their GDP guidance, so they everybody thought they were going to do five point two percent for. Q3 and they ended up at 4.9%. Um, so things are looking a little sluggish. If we revert that back to what's happening in the US today, it's, it, I would say, you know, the folks I talk to, the clients I talk to, the, the inbound calls I'm getting from, from operators and service providers, it feels it is different in that I, they're not feeling the pain and the effects of all this stuff um, exactly. But it is still, I think, a bit of a deer in the headlights moment of, holy crap, WTI is at $83 a barrel. But we're not necessarily, you know, adding all those rigs. That's different for the privates, and I think that the market is have. I, I know that the market, in terms of the stock market, and in terms of the analysts and stuff that you see on TV, they have no clue 
the split between the private operators and the public operators is not just in the in the U.S. but within the Permian Basin, especially. And I was looking at the recount last, you know, looking at the recount, looking at your primary vision data last night. And I mean, where we're at for rigs, where we're at for frac count, we're we're way we're off our you know January 2020 where we were there, uh, but we're we're pretty damn high. I mean, we've really ratcheted yeah. up for what 500 and some 500 and some rigs, according to your guys's going back to your primary vision data here 500 and some rigs 563 rigs i think it is 263 rigs in the permian and i think what did you say for the total frac fleet count so nationally it's 268 268 yeah which is uh we bottomed at what 54 54 yeah that's a (laughs) like a i mean i just feel like that is a a a long, long difference. I mean, uh, I mean, that's a light years from where 54 to 200 and, you know, we're, we're pushing that toward that yep. 300 mark. So that's huge. And can we, can you just unpack that a little bit for, I, I don't know how much you're allowed to disclose on, on a breakout of that or anything, but I know that there's, um, and I would like to get into this, the simulfrac stuff a little bit, because I think people just look at that number, you know, they put it against the WTI or they put it right. against a, a rig chart and then it's like, oh, it's going up. Does it need to keep going up? And there's a lot of nuances baked in there. Of how many wells you're actually poking, you know, p- putting in the ground and, ha- and the duck count. So just w- what are your thoughts on on that rise in that rig count? Sure. Or, sorry, the rise in that frackley count. So one of the things that we've been really uh, kind of pushing when you look at what is happening in the frack spread count the the first move when you, when we came from 2020 into 2021 was a rest at the decline curve. So that's why you know our view was that you were going to see frac spreads run well ahead of where rig counts were. They were just going to try to like you know hone in, take their capbacks, make sure you know we were estimating that that we were going to see decline curves between about 10 to 15 percent. I think they ended up locking in at about 13 and a half percent when you look at what happened between. Uh, you know, and, and that's just talking about on a uh, company level, because the, the the as we all know with shale, if you let the declines get too low, that uphill battle just becomes insurmountable. So it was a matter of trying to to manage that as we came into 2021. So then, when you look at what the what the breakdowns were, our view was you were going to see a huge run to oil and oil. You were going to see a ton of oil spreads. So when you look at the historics, you know that is that is looking at something that is a bit healthier of let's call it sixty percent, forty percent natural gas. Where right now we're about 80, 20, maybe now about seventy-seven uh, percent that are focused on oil. And just given where where we are in the cycle, we we expect to see not so much the oil uh, frac spreads coming down, but you're going to see some of those natural gas guys start to close that gap because. We still haven't really seen a huge response in the Northeast. Not that we expect it to, but we do expect to see three or three, about three to five. The Haynesville is the one that's really interesting. That's where there's a, there still is a, de- a decent amount of ducks. You have not seen that drawdown in that region. And we're starting to see uh, frac spreads come back more aggressively. And if you just think about logistics, right? Where's the Haynesville? But you're right next to the Gulf of Mexico. You yep. don't have the same bottlenecks when you look at what's coming out of the Northeast. And then it, what that also bleeds over into Oklahoma, and and some don't don't appreciate the fact that oh, the southern uh, side of Oklahoma has a ton of dry gas, and there's a lot of pipe, so there's a lot of ways yep. to uh, to start to to bring that into the fold, and you're starting to see some of that really grow. So our our my view or our view has really been that 275 was going to be our peak. We put that call out back in December. Uh, and then we've reiterated it uh, over time. We did take our exit rate for for crude production from eleven. Uh, you know, we initially thought eleven point three to about eleven point five uh, on an exit rate uh, level. And then uh, about March, because of the speed in which the frac spreads came back, we took that and we bumped it higher to about eleven point five to eleven point seven million barrels a day, much closer to that point six point seven side as we project into twenty twenty two. And you bring up a great point when you look at, you know, rigs versus spreads and and where the Permian is. The Permian is very much back to where it was on historical terms, especially when you factor in, uh, you know, simul frac, dual frac, however you, whatever nomenclature you want to use. And when you look at what's happening in the Permian, that's where we've really seen it deployed. Uh, about 15 to 20% of fracks are uh, simul frac. So that's another thing where you're just seeing the efficiencies. Now, the problem with a simulfrac is 
you need at least four wells on the pad to make it economic right. and make it make right. sense. And you're seeing that being tested in the Permian just due to how easy it is to move back and forth. But then when you start looking at uh, EFRACs, EFRACs have a lot of that spare horsepower naturally just with the, the way the turbines function to have that horsepower. So it's much easier with an EFRAC where you, you know typically you, know, you need anywhere between 33 and 40% more horsepower per spread in order to do the, to do the dual frack. So it's just being tested there, being perfected, and we do expect that to see it uh, rolled out right. uh, in the coming few quarters uh, can in we, some other Can regions. we hone in? There's a there's a f- several things you've touched on that I would like to get into, and that is, you know, I, I want to make sure we we circle back to this this natural gas side because it's huge, and I think for for listeners who are listening abroad or folks on the macro, I want to talk about natural gas in the U.S. because I think mm-hmm. the potential for for the potential for the U.S. to to help. Uh, the global energy picture is is pretty is pretty significant in that we have a lot of natural gas we're producing. I mean, probably just shy of 100 BCF a day, um, but we have more natural gas than anybody in the world. And so, for to incrementally add into the U.S. and in out um, is definitely there. And places like dry gas in Oklahoma and places like Haynesville are the the predominant places do this. But that frac spread and this simo frac in so when you say this in the Permian, we're kind of back to where we were. And I I would agree with that. I would say that from a, a I think a sheer activity level standpoint, it doesn't look necessarily the same mm-hmm. if you're, you know, you're flying over and you're doing that. But in terms of what the operations are actually doing from a rig and frac standpoint, we're nearing the levels and from an, especially from the speed at which they're doing it. Um, and these simofracs or that 15 to 20%, I'd agree with that number roughly. I think there's some discrepancies in terms of, you know, how many actual, how people are counting those. Um, mm-hmm. Whether that's one or two, and I'd be interested to know in, in your number um, that you guys are talking about is that or is that is that simofrac one or two, but in general is that that I think uh, it was um, it was Patterson UTI that actually has a, a very good public presentation. I think they spoke at a at a bank and bank conference and they put the presentation up. It's the first presentation I've seen on simofracs where they just broke it out and they just said here's what's actually on location and here ha- here's how this change has changed over time. When I asked Chris Wright and um, at uh, in September, and I asked him about break down the simofrac thing for me, he gave an honest answer that was just saying yes, you're you're fracking two wells at once, but you're not doing it with you're not doing it with necessarily half the equipment. And I think there's a there's something true to that, but it is less. It's not double the equipment, so it's right. it's not like I have two full frac fleets and I just have one frac crew in terms of people, and I'm doing this. So I think you have over time you you have a uh, some fraction of that, whether it's half, you know, whether it's full horsepower, whatever it is, depends upon your, what you're doing and the sophistication of what you're doing. But I don't think it's full frack fleet. And I, I think we know that. And I know it's not a full and it's 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 half your frack crew. So for folks who are um, in the business or, or, or downstream of the service sector from that and supplying stuff to the people, the you know, the people actually in the field, it's less people in the field. Um, mm-hmm. If you're 20% of your your frack fleets are simulfracks, that's you know, at least that twenty percent is half the is half the people you would normally have, and the right. trend is going to keep going in that direction, at least in the Permian Basin, because of those uh, the push on those four wheel pads and the efficiencies and just the nature of the mm-hmm. development of the Permian. But I, if you if you can tell me think about that or give me your thoughts on on that on the that fifteen to twenty percent of the simofrac and what's actually on location and is it it's not it's not just two two frac plates, right? It's a fraction right. of that, but it is like half the crew. And are we counting, yeah. are people counting that right, especially when they're looking at your data? So I think when, if you were to compare us to some other competing data out there, uh, other data is much higher than ours. And it's it's a lot of reasons where some people are using satellite data and they're miscounting uh, what is a workover, you know, what is what is just waiting to move. And and it's funny because the way we do it and the way we look at a simofrac is it's one frac fleet. But then, so we have different tabs. So there's one that is the roll-up. So we'll show that as one frac uh, crew sitting there. And then we'll show that crew act- actively fracking two wells. So when you look at the IP and when you look at the actual address, when because we, we have the, uh, the geolocation shown, you'll have the same spread showing up twice and then it'll just give you do two different wells because we go down not only just to the pad, but also to the well level. So we'll be showing you each well being fracked simultaneously, but it'll only have one uh, frack crew there. 
and then we, it, then we'll give you who's the EMP doing it and who is the frac uh, company or the uh, the oil field service company that is carrying it out. So we try to really create something that is usable so you understand what is happening. And then from there, we can then show how much horsepower is being used, uh, how much sand is going down or propping rather, and then what uh, what is coming back, whether that be uh, brackish water, fresh water that went down, and then uh, what was the oil uh, or really three stream return on each one. Just because I think it makes it a little bit easier to do apples to apples when you want to look at how is one uh, one well doing versus another, you know, how are the different pads doing over time? So those are things that we're tracking that, that we're tracking actively, and we're getting a bit more in the weeds. And and you brought up, you know, you're not have you don't have two, you don't have the the equivalent of uh, two sets of horsepower merged together. It's really about, uh, you know, there's only you only need a step up of about thirty to forty percent of additional horsepower to achieve that. But on the efrac side, which is where this gets interesting, the efrac side one efrac. You don't need a step up because there's already spare horsepower that can be used and can be done uh, on the uh, fracking side. And we just for the listeners, because it's talked about quite a bit and it's going to be talked about more in the next earnings round from Mm -hmm. from Patterson, from next year, from Liberty. I mean, it's going to be mentioned and and Liberty showed their showcase their their digi frack that they had. But I I would like listeners to understand what exactly is an like when we say electric frack electric frack fleet. And the reason I, I struggle with this is because it wasn't even two years ago that the resistance by Halliburton in their public earnings, in their earnings call to electric was strong. I mean, it oh, wasn't yeah. just like a little bit was, no, this is ridiculous. The trend isn't going there. And the the struggle I have with, with and I love the frack side of the business. Anyone who knows me knows that if I could complete wells for a living, that is what I would be doing. <laughs> um, But I'm not an engineer. So, you know, some people let let me dabble on it. Some people don't. But anyways, that being said, frack is a is a hard business. And mm-hmm. in that it was great years ago, but the margins are relatively thin. And so this e-frack is fascinating to me because it's definitely been pushed from a it's been pushed from a ESG standpoint um, from operators. And I think from operators to say we're lowering our, our our carbon footprint on on the on the frack side to the equivalent what they're actually doing, um, the numbers, I would like to see the total breakdown of the impact of all the operators that have switched over to, to electric frackly. The actual impact, I think, on carbon is probably relatively small, but regardless, they get to say it. Um, mm-hmm. But I do think the, the only reason you really do something in the business is, yes, you have that, but you also have to have something else. It has to actually work, right? This has to, the horsepower has to be there, it has to be powerful, and it has to frack these damn wells. So I'd, from a explaining electric frack fleet, where is it getting its, like, it can get its power from different sources. So in theory, it could be getting it from from natural gas, or if it's getting it from the grid, but if the grid is getting it from coal, that's where it's getting it from, right? So I just like to, if we can break down what is an electric frack fleet, and are we, is the trend, uh, what's what's that trend in? And we know that it's expensive. We also know that uh, Liberty did not break down the the cost for no, Nobody's actually broken down the cost. I don't think Halliburton, Liberty, any of the publics have broken down. This is what we paid for it. And this is the money we're getting back because that's mm-hmm. still an evolving story. So I'm not criticizing that for these guys. But I, I do think it's something that the operators are pushing for, the market's pushing for. And a lot of folks don't truly understand what it actually is. So when, when you look at an electric flack, uh, frack fleet, you're using electricity instead of diesel to power the uh, the pumps. So there's this comes on, on multiple levels. So one, it's important to look at most of the time they're using uh, field gas. So they're using field gas, they're running it into a, uh, a, a turbine to then generate that electricity that is being used and consumed on site. Now, there was a lot of concern about what was the environmental impact. And then when you look at what Caterpillar uh, came out and they had to actually take their numbers away or adjust them on the dual fuel side, because they were saying that if you use dual fuel, you know, this is much better and and there's a lot of efficiencies and it kind of takes away some of the environmental benefits of an e-fleet. And that has actually, they, they've reversed that because that was uh, that was debunked. In terms of providing, uh, you know, there was actually a decent carbon footprint even on that side. But again, it, when you look at what is an efrac in general, the benefits are it's quiet in the sense of you don't have to put up the same type of uh, of sound deadening. You and then at the same time, it's smaller. So when you look at the sheer footprint of it, it's a much tighter footprint 
that makes it easier to operate when you're looking at uh, some of these different wells, especially when you go to Pennsylvania, West, uh, West Virginia, and just what you have to manage with. When you're in Texas, everything's wide open. You, know, you, you don't have the same type of restrictions. No, but those two things, you think those about two moving- things, quieter and smaller. I mean, if you guys just think if you've ever been on location and just, just think about any any construction site or anything, something that's quieter is huge. And and Liberty mm-hmm. did pioneer that with their quiet frack plates. So you can't have quiet frack plates that are not EFRAC. And that's that's right. been going on for a while. But it's, it is huge because it's super loud. And if you're on site and you've got multiple operations going on and from a safety standpoint, just being able to talk and hear people is is huge. So one, that's a big deal. And then this, the size, I mean, here in the, in the DJ in Colorado, they can be really tight. So you having less on site and just meaning that if you need wireless line, if you're doing some operations, if you, all kinds of things are happening on, on site. It's not just a, a perfect little, we're just going to frack today and nothing else right. is going to happen or, or go wrong. So the ability to just have less of a footprint, that's huge. It just, I think it gives operators a lot of maneuverability and, and it helps from a safety standpoint as well. Right. And then the other the other benefit is when now that we're starting to get more and more data, there's less moving parts. So if you think about just the uptime and and the upkeep, you're you're looking at a very low maintenance level. Now the problem is we still don't really know what is that payback period. What are we looking at in terms of timeframes? And there is a a fairly um, sizable backlog of of uh, e fleets that are being built. The problem is <laughs> the supply chain hits everybody. And when you look at where some of the delays have been, when you're looking at the build out of additional capacity, it's really gotten pushed further and further into 2022 because they are expensive. It's not something where you just snap your fingers and say, hey, we want to have this. But when you look at what has gone for sale, there's there's a decent amount of, uh, of frack uh, horsepower that has come up for sale. It's, it's started to change hands. And it's guys making way for, I think, a newer uh, brand, if you will, of that e-fleet side because you can say look this is what we've done this is the uh, the the uh, greenhouse gases we've t- we've taken out this is what we've utilized and you're starting to see that especially when you got that dual fuel uh, I don't want to say benefit but bump when they took away or took down what they thought uh, the the environmental benefits were for that uh, caterpillar product but, but from a technical standpoint I would I would just think okay. From basics, and again, I'm not I'm not working for a frack company, so I don't know this. But you have to be you have to pay to build it, right? And you, you have maintenance with no matter what you're fracking with, mm-hmm. you have maintenance costs. And the fact that we are we are we're fracking two wells at once, the fact that we are pumping more sand, more fluid, or more whether it's it's crosslink or whether it's water, we're pumping a lot of it. And so you have a lot of and the 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 demand for speed and efficiency it's great for the operators and it's actually you know, it it helps actually the service providers in in recouping costs but it wear has wear and tear on your equipment so you have to right. reinvest in your equipment but the question is is like is this what you reinvest in and can this does this hold up better than some of that older equipment um and what is the what is the repair for that and you're still using uh, the the ESG side from the, the carbon standpoint of your CO two emission footprint which is really it, what it, has pushed to a degree this this electric practically, at mm-hmm. least from an operator standpoint of, of pushing and saying we're using is that you, if you are plugged into the grid and your grid is run by natural gas, what is the difference between you know are you actually getting um do, are you getting a more efficient use of horsepower by plugging into the grid or can you use a natural gas turbine and get that same efficiency or is it more powerful to plug into the grid? That's my question. What's what's the most power that I and in the most efficient because I would imagine that some of those tier four and some of those the stuff that Caterpillar and these guys are using are are comparable to these digifracks. Or the, sorry, not digi, these electric frac fleets. Yeah. So the um the the benefit that you've seen is that you're you're utilizing the gas that's on field. So a lot of these are being used in more remote locations where you wouldn't have the ability to uh to tap into the grid in such a way. And a lot of times because it's in going to be such a short term pull for you to, to to wire that and to run those lines that are necessary, unless you're doing it in a very continuous line and you have a central station, then you could start doing that. So realistically, you have the turbine on site and you're able to generate that power locally, which then you is, is a benefit because you don't have to worry about how am I running this line? What do I need from the utility? What do they have to make uh, available? So you're seeing a bit more of a of a of a breakthrough on that side. Now, 
On the other side, when you look at the Permian, does it make sense to create a substation because you're going to be running essentially in a straight line? And depending on how many you're going to do, in what percent percentage can you do an e and on an EFRAC side? I think that's where you start coming into. Does it make sense to almost have your own little microgrid that you can then own and operate and then generate your own power from, but you can generate it from your localized field gas? Because one of the things that I was actually really impressed with is the BTU value that these guys can run with. And this is something where you can essentially run ethane through this and it won't blow up, which, which I thought was really interesting because you don't have to worry about you know, something that is very rich or very wet. So that became, I think, a, a game changer when you're looking at the ability to use that Y-grade capacity versus having to send it to your midstream and then you pulling could, it back. Yeah, I was going to say in, uh, in North Dakota, there would be a huge application for that. Especially yeah. given that you're rejecting a lot of ethane still. And that's why it's very interesting to see the amount of capacity that's coming through. And then when, you, when you're looking at the, the underlying throw off of, of fumes and, and diesel and whatnot, they're looking at it from the perspective of you know, the, the greenhouse gases in total and less about just on carbon. Because if you're capturing a lot of this excess methane, then you're utilizing it in a meaningful way. There's a lot of ways to kind of skin that cat to make sure that the numbers are always going to work in your favor. But but overall, it, you do have flexibility in how you fuel it, and it is a, it is a efficient in how it's using it, and that yes. creates uh, that creates operational advantages for um, for the for the frac player and for the operator. Well, so especially when you're thinking about you know if you're if and you talk about the DJ, you know what what does it need when you have. Uh, you know, multiple trucks coming through. Not only are you bringing trucks for sand, you're not you're bringing them for other types of propane, but also for diesel. So yep. now you're also going to take away some of that truck traffic. You're not going to have to utilize. So then it becomes the operations become a bit uh, a bit seamless. You know, and you start to see some of these these ancillary benefits that just make the location happier, the people around it happier, yep. and there's a certain amount of. Uh, uh, appeasing, if you will, if you want to look yes. at the uh, the social side of that ESG uh, commentary. This is why uh, I say the the localized propent, which we already have pretty localized propent in in the Permian, but I think it's going to get even more local, and it's going to mm -hmm. reduce that. I, I think it's going to get on site to where you're not even you're not even trucking it to location. But with that, let's let's flip back a little bit into the okay. So you have the frac frac spread count. Um, we, we, we've talked about that to a degree. We know we bottomed at 74. We know we, we've recovered and you guys have said this, you, I believe you, you said it was 275, which mm -hmm. is what you, you were talking straight about. I agree with you by the way on, I mean, we're at 11.3 million barrels per day for the U S I still think we're, we're well under, we're, we're definitely well under our, our U S potential of what we should be producing mm -hmm. and, and could be And hurricane. Ida certainly kept a lot of barrels offline and North Dakota is around a million barrels a day. So, I mean, New Mexico is absolutely crushing it, um, and I like to remind listeners that that is we're we're nearly one point uh, we're we're put well over a million barrels a day one one point two million barrels a day in in New Mexico alone. That's two counties. We're I it's probably still around seven thousand wells horizontal wells. I mean it's it's pretty astounding and ridiculous what's happening there. But the point is, from a technical standpoint, I think we have a lot of running room, and I do think mm -hmm. we're going to exit the year around probably around 11.5 million barrels per day, um, given a number of factors, but we're going to continue to move higher. And we are seeing, we are seeing folks like OPEC and the IEA also recognize that is uh, that the U S is going to be coming online. They kind of disregard it, but it's, it's a reality, but from the, the rig side and the duck side, this is where people are starting to get nervous of uh, the mismatch in the rigs and the ducks. Now, one, we haven't, we haven't drawn down all the ducks. So the ducks, right. there are still ducks. I still see, mm -hmm. you know, Around 500 ducks in North Dakota. Um, you know, I know that's not uh, that's not 2,000, but it's still a lot. People often, I think, we have to think about the what the function of ducks is, like what it actually what what they are. And I would say rigs, frac fleets, ducks. That whole thing changed with COVID. So right. if you're you're thinking about it with the same way you thought about it pre you know March 2020, you're probably thinking about it wrong. And operators are not functioning the same, and and even privates and publics are it's just not the same. But right. the rig count is not what it was. But yet the laterals are longer. We're drilling way faster. 
you know, these these public companies tend to say we don't need as many rigs as we did b- before. They're not 100 percent right in exactly in their numbers, but they're pretty damn right in that we don't need as many rigs as we did before. And I would say in, in places like the Permian, we're, we're I'd say we're nearing add 50 more rigs and we're probably back to roughly where we were. Um, but I mean, in terms of the efficiencies of these rigs and the actual I mean, if you're looking at these high spec rigs, the H&P and Patterson UTI, I mean, these are uh, these are bad boys. These are not like little tiny little rigs that are running around and doing. I mean, these are serious rigs that are doing a lot, and mm-hmm. they can they are doing more with with less. So I think we need less. But the duck count is this is what's really getting people nervous is that we are have drawn down these ducks. And we, the frac spread the frac fleets have gone crazy, and we poked a lot of holes. We're not yet. It's not yet showing in the monthly production data, mm-hmm. so that's a little wonky. But we're, we're fracking a lot of wells, and now we've drawn down the ducks, and everybody's nervous. And I wasn't actually nervous until I looked at that. I broke out the publics and privates and was looking in the Permian, and I was looking at the, the public rigs and the private rigs and saying that we did have a flip. We now have more operators that are private drilling in the Permian Basin than we do publics, which is not necessarily a bad thing. They respond to prices. There's, there's a lot of caveats to that of what prices do and how they will mm-hmm. respond on the downside. But they don't have as many ducks. So we still have a lot of publics with a lot of ducks. So they don't necessarily need as many rigs for one. And they have a little more flexibility. But these privates don't have the duck backlog. And that makes total sense because they're just ramping up. But that does have implications for the rig count and for the frac fleet count and for just the nature and trajectory of how this works. And I don't think a lot of people necessarily understand that these operators are very... it, they they're not one big you know entity one big monolith they they're very individualistic um mm-hmm. they they think individualistic they make their own decisions and so it's not one company may have 20 ducks one company may have 200 and it's it's a completely different function of the business but i'd love to get your take on just given that you guys you, you show the the recount you put the the frac spread count to it that's public but what do you think about this duck count when you're thinking about it in that context so one of the things that that we've been talking about from the very beginning was that you were going to see ducks get drawn down to 2018 levels. And the difference when you look at 2018 versus now, we were gunning for, you know, we were going to go from 11.5 million barrels a day to 18 million barrels a day. And we were gearing up to get there. We were drilling locations. We were drilling we were creating backlog. We we had all these different programs running. We were doing different testing. You had the parent-child situation. So you had all of these moves, and we were making this push that continued from 18 into 19. And then in 19, you started to see a lot of issues where 19, it was, well, we're not exporting as much crude as we thought we were going to. We've kind of tapped out the amount Europe is really buying. Does it really make sense? All of a sudden, South Korea started to slow down a bit. And you started to see some of these builds increase in the U.S., and we started to really run past what our what our demand was globally for U.S. crude. When you look at the U.S., you know the, the average uh, U.S. Uh, you know f- um, refiner takes and needs about 33 API crude, and when you look at shale, shale is at anywhere between 42 and 48, depending on you know looking at the averages, because we can obviously go well above 55 as well. So when you start looking at what can be run internally and then the the excess that has to be exported, we started to run into a lot of these different bottlenecks. And that was where you started to see some of this pivot of, well, what makes sense for the U.S.? And then obviously, uh, the let's just say COVID helped that situation move and adjust in a different way. So now when you look at where we sit today, we just didn't need that kind of duck count. And that's where we really worked through it. Now there's always going to be a concern because the question is always how much, how many of those ducks are actually usable? Because when you look at ducks that say were drilled before 2018, 2017, it's like, well, they, they you know, either they fell out of zone, they were in a place that that no longer works. You know, we saw some of the failures with that parent child, so that child will never get completed because then it would take away too much pressure. So then it becomes of well, what is usable? And I think when you start breaking it down, as you said, you know, the amount of ducks that are still available, you know, there is a lot of usability with some of these, but we've also been very adamant that 275 is really where you're going to start to see that cap and you're going to continue to see those rigs run up because there is going to be that rebuild of duck counts going into 2022 to recreate some of that running room that is needed just because you can't run too far ahead, you know, when you look at where things are. So the duck, the 
the way we've we've been able to break it down is the frac spread count is about thirty to sixty days. You'll see that in uh, in in production. So typically, uh, after thirty days, we have about a ninety percent correlation, eighty eighty eight to ninety percent correlation to production, and then over the course of sixty days, it improves to about ninety four percent. So as you see that run up. It then takes about 30 days to see that incremental increase in production to your point of it takes time. You know, there's a lot of processes, but we're doing it faster. You know, we have now AI, we have a lot of things that have been done to help replicate and speed up some of the things that have been accomplished in the, in the past. Now, you still have the issues of labor, you know, labor still tight. You know, you're starting to see those uh, labor, the wages go up. Obviously, steel prices are elevated, but it, you're still... There's a lot of efficiencies that we've gained and continuously gain as we utilize that machine learning and a lot of that technology that was kind of un unknown, unsure, how is it going to be integrated in 17 and 18? And then in 19, you started to see it click a little bit. And I, I think that's only continued to increase over that time period in increasing some of these efficiencies that we've seen, even as some of these super crews, if you will, start to get broken up. Right. And and the guy, you know, they, you have a foreman that was a foreman on another, then he moves over and he's now below the foreman, whether he's an assistant or or a, a lead deckhand, and then that that he'll he'll go back. And but because of what has been learned, because of those things that are now stored in the system, it becomes a little bit easier where you won't lose the same type of efi of efficiencies right. if you call it like the brain drain from these A crews to the B crew to the C crew. You're getting a lot of consistencies now that we haven't seen in the past. So this brings up a couple, a couple different things. I don't. There's nothing I, I necessarily disagree with that. I do think the function of ducks is different, though. The, so, I, I do disagree with the, uh, the amount of our refineries can run. So in this industry, downstream included, when you push it hard enough, it usually responds. And so everybody wants to like. I, I've been doing this since my it was my first job, mm -hmm. and really started actually on the downstream and midstream side. So when you push refineries and say, oh my gosh. What you have too much light sweet crude, they freak out until they until the price is right and they adapt to it. You 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 can run light sweet crude in many refiners. You're just not necessarily it's not going to be completely efficient. We are running. I mean, pre COVID, these many refineries are running basically flat out, and so it does it did make more sense. This number we're sort of hovering around three million barrels a day of crude exports, which you know for a lot of people who don't want to export crude and natural gas have to realize that. It, we need to export that crude because that is really light, sweet crude. The global market wants that. We import the heavy stuff from Canada. It works out really well with the refineries and, it, and mm -hmm. we get these various products late. Um, but all that being said, the, the function of the duck count to me is that it evolves, right? Is that pre-2014, I mean, even in 2014 when we had these ducks and companies didn't necessarily build a, a backlog of ducks because they wanted them in their portfolio. They did it because of this price sensitivities and I had the rigs and I needed to keep them running and I, but I'm not going to, I'm not going to complete them because volatility and, and or price being low or whatever it is. And you had companies like EOG, and I know I've said this before on the podcast, but they're, they are one of the few that was really clear about this. You know, they, they were clear when their, you know, acreage was diminishing a little bit in terms of productivity in the, in the, in the, um, Eagleford. And they were clear at least coming out of 2014 that, Hey, we have these ducks and we don't really, I mean, they weren't completely clear, but they eventually said we didn't really want to complete them because they right. weren't as good because their drilling got significantly better. So mm -hmm. I wouldn't say like every single duck is, we're not going to, or the, the, these usable ducks, I think we have to be a bit careful for, because I think in somebody else's hands, they could totally use them. I do think that in the Permian Basin, you have to be extremely careful. And we're still in the very early innings of just the timing, which the timing of which you bring wells online, the timing of which you're you know, you, you frack those wells and, and all these things to how, how you actually complete them and how you actually drain these reservoirs. So that's a factor, you know, if, if especially private companies or publics have gone a little willy nilly and aren't doing that appropriately, you're going to have some ducks that are, have potentially screwed things up a little bit there. So you have to think about that in the duck backlog. But I would say in general, there's no way that our, you know, a company like EOG or Pioneer, if they have progressed in drilling efficiencies and gotten a little bit better, even, even a fraction better, about landing, their ducks aren't going to be as good. Their two-year-old right. ducks are not going to be as good as their current wells. Mm -hmm. And so your incentive to bring on those older wells just isn't going to be as high if you know that you're doing those slightly better and you're gonna, your performance is going to be better, especially when, I mean, it, it might be a little bit clouded because prices are $83 a barrel and, and every 
can, I mean, crap, you can put wells as close as you want together in the powder and it doesn't matter. And when prices drive to 50, you know, that changes. So <clears throat> the the data points in terms of oil prices are, are probably clouding things to agree. But I think the operators, the function of ducks of how they use them in their portfolio, I mean, it used to be, you know, used to hear Continental saying, okay, well, we want a few ducks to get us into the next year. So we have some wiggle room. It's just not the each company has this portfolio of ducks for a different reason, I think. And right. some of them is because we had these rigs, we needed to keep them running, and, and now we have these ducks. But it's not necessarily because we always want this massive backlog. I mean, that it just, it, it's, it's sort of the nature of, and it happened because we were, we were drilling like crazy, and we, mm -hmm. we also increased our efficiencies like crazy on the drilling side. And that does tend to get ahead of this frac side. And I think now you mentioned those, those the labor side and... I know we need to switch gears because we only have about 20 minutes left here. But um, this labor site, we have this labor crunch. And this could maybe pivot us into the, this global zoo. We have a massive mm -hmm. labor crunch in the U.S. I mean, it's across all sectors. So we, we definitely hear this from the service operators. We hear this from folks in the field. I think it's probably worse than people letting on. And I yeah. think is if you're trying to gear anything up, it's going to be harder to get people. And the tightness is going to be worse. And I also think that the just from a chemical standpoint, from anything you're bringing in that we're not making in the U.S., has got to start being a crunch, has got to start being a pain point for the frac. If you, if you haven't stored all this stuff up and you need to get it, it you're going to have to start seeing some pain. So I feel like we could probably see some stickiness on the frac side and the rig side going forward if we're, import, if we're importing anything and you haven't got your, all your ducks, in, ducks in, pun intended, if you haven't gotten everything in a row of all your stuff, you might have some tightness. And I think that could be problematic in the next couple, in the next few months and, and into 2022. Yeah, and that's that's I think you're you're starting to see that now. We're we're starting to see the um the the hesitancy because the question is who's going to pay for it. And typically, when you look at fuel and labor, that's a pass through cost. So you've started to see you know how how much price uh, sensitivity do people have? Are they allowing some of these prices coming through? So we've seen anywhere depending on the location, fifteen to thirty percent increase in uh, in wages. You've seen uh, you've seen bonus stage bonuses go up. You've seen a lot of things that have tried to incentivize and try to bring people back just because when you start looking at the different backdrops of timing, bringing the labor, and then how much how much training do you have? Do I have to train you? Are you going to be kind of, I don't want to say useless, but are you just going to be someone that's going to kind of drag down the operations a bit because you're just going to be shadowing someone, you know, going through and learning the motions. So those are things that become a, product, uh, a productivity issue. And then when you look at the, the, let's just call them the experienced hands that have now gone through, you know, what what is now maybe the third down cycle, and you're getting a lot of money to be a truck driver or construction worker, are you really incentivized to come back? And at what price are you incentivized to come back? And I and I think that's where we continue to see some of these um these pushbacks when trying to bring back some of the uh, the more experienced hands. Absolutely, and I I mean that's that goes across the board, and we could we could talk about this. At, at length, uh, we are, or I am going to have to have you back because we're going to have to have a whole separate podcast on just. Well, the, well, well, the one thing that we can definitely talk about is the refining side because you know you've we've only seen a two percentage uh, two point uh, increase from thirty one to thirty three, and the problem is the coker is the coker, so you can't you know there's only so much heavy that uh, light that can go through, but they have invested since twenty fifteen or so in uh, alkylation units and reformate and hydro cracking, so. They've done things to take to take the light sweet away from the coker and to keep the coker as heavy as possible. And you can adjust things to increase the amount of light sweet run, but then you're adjusting catalysts. So the question yeah, but is, you're not, you're, what so is the time frame of it? You're, you're, that coking capacity, it's great. You have it, right? It doesn't mean that you can't, I mean, I think it's, it's, it's a it's lot of the light 40, ends. Well, the, it's a 55, it, We have too many light ends in a refinery. You have right. to deal with them, right? You're mm -hmm. refining a light sweet barrel, and it, you have all the all the all the natural gas, like all the stuff that comes off with that. You have all these light ends, and half the battle is what do I do with that when I'm in the refining right. process? I have to move that around and I have to get that somewhere, and that's part of why we've seen gasoline exports and diesel exports go up, and and other products. If you look at all the mm -hmm. EIA and you look at all the stuff that we export, and we export a massive amount of stuff. Because we have all this excess product, it's a good thing that we're, that we're exporting in this and we're doing it efficiently. And and I'm not saying that you you, sh you should be running light sweet in a in a heavy refinery with a coker, but it doesn't mean that you you can't incentivize. We have seen this. We've seen uh, we've seen refineries incentivized to run a lighter sweet crude, not at these prices when they're discounted, right. 
it makes well, sense. Well, it's, and- it's typically like a 55-45. Like when you look at what, how light can you go in, in terms of like the rule of thumb was always 55% heavy, 45% light can go through the coker. And you know, during how you have the catalyst on the back ends, when you go through the FCC, then, then you can have it go a little bit swing one way versus the other, depending on what is your downstream processing. And that's why you've seen a lot of that alkene reformers that have been put in to try to take that and turn it into more usable product, right. if you will, on the blending stock side. So like when you look at what we did at the very beginning, I shouldn't say the beginning, but in the middle of the winter, uh, the summer, we were sending a ton of gasoline to uh, to Europe, but it wasn't gasoline. It was it was essentially blending opponents with right. a, with a, a huge chunk of naphtha, right? Because they were running so tight on naphtha that it be the R blew open. So we classified it in the EIA as gasoline, but it really wasn't gasoline. It yep. was just more. It was more along the lines of what was going to go through the pet chem side. And that's a whole nother condensate naphtha discussion. Okay, so right. with that, I'm gonna I'm gonna cut you off because I want to switch gears, and I do want since I, I like to make sure people are getting enough of this global macro because I can't get enough of it. And I, I don't, it, it's probably the single biggest thing that's missing from, from a U.S. understanding. And I can tell from, you know, you, you guys have a great product that you sell. Um, and I, I don't, I don't pretend to, uh, I, th- I think it's great that we can actually converse and talk about this stuff and, and people get to know that uh, we're, it's okay to compete in the marketplace and sell great things. But when people call me, I, I think the deer in the headlights is right now is this global macro story. Um, is that so? International Energy Agency had their World Energy Outlook, and I have to flag this because it's a little bit ridiculous to me that it came out a month before. Um, so usually it comes out in November, and no, normally you have to pay for it. So the World mm-hmm. Energy Outlook is a you know usually 120 euro dollar or 120 euros that you have to pay for. A lot of people don't buy it, so you just get these little snippets. It's free this year, and I think we start. Why is it free? Well, it's it's COP26 is coming up. Um, and that's coming up at the, just in a couple of weeks. And so it's very clear when they do this, that you can listen to the hour preview that they do of the, um, Fatih and his two colleagues actually give an hour on this, this IEA thing, and you can, you can watch it. And then you have this massively long report. Um, and what's fascinating to me is that this is all built and it's literally built on the back of the net zero report that they did, which called for not, not investing at all in fossil fuels. So, I think it's really important to put that in context of what is happening today where everyone and their dog, including people who are people who are not exactly in love with fossil fuels, still c- concerned that we're not investing enough in natural gas um, and that we're not going to have enough natural gas. So that is something that I, I'm, I'm shocked that Fatih Barol, and if I'm the only person that calls him out and criticizes him, I am okay with that because nobody has come out and said that you know, when you first wrote the first net zero report, he said it was a thought piece. It literally was written. It said, this is a thought piece. This is not a, this is not a, a, they weren't using it as a necessarily full on report. And yet the market and everyone took it and said, this is what, you know, this is net zero. And this is, we're going to have to decline fossil fuel. And if you look at those graphs, this is tens of millions of barrels a day accrued that we have to drop to within, within a matter of a handful of years that we're dropping and declining and that we don't need we need to stop investing to hit these targets. We have to stop investing immediately. That was a thought piece, but it was asked, it was requested by the UK leader of the COP26, which is heading COP26. So you start getting into like the politics of this, which make me a little bit nervous. And then they announce this, this new world energy outlook and they say, okay, this is basically, we're doing this as a, a, a as a help, helpful piece before COP26 to give these leaders, you know, a framework to think about things. And I would have thought that they would have put a little bit more work, at least front loading it into this energy crunch. And they do talk about it. They, he certainly, Fatih Burrell certainly mentions it and says, hey, we have this energy crunch. But he says, it is, he clarifies, this is not about, this energy crunch is not about clean energy. It, clean energy did not cause this energy crunch. And I'm not saying it caused it either by any means, but he's saying it's not about it. And he specifies this is about, you know, natural gas and weather. And he mentions hydro. And it, it's fascinating to me because I'm like, well, Look, hydro is a huge component. We saw this in Brazil, we saw this in China, and we saw this in Europe, where hydropower, which is a huge portion of power, and I mentioned this in previous podcasts for China, massive amount of portion of power. Interestingly enough, the way BP Statistical Review classifies this, hydropower is not considered a renewable. So um, it's it's hydropower, and you, you're looking at hydropower in the US, which I think works great, but renewables are typically wind and solar. And the amount of promotion that the IEA has done on wind and solar is Uh, it's outstanding. I mean, it is just over the top (laughs) because there's no consideration for the fossil fuels that go into the production 
of, of wind and solar, especially given that 70% of all solar is coming from the Xinjiang province of China, which is um, absolutely, there's no question there's human rights abuses and that, that we know that people are using forced labor to actually make these solar panels. So mm. that's not considered at all. And so the promotion of this just is, it's crazy to me, but it's wind and solar. And then they don't mention, they don't mention wind as part of this energy crunch, which is, uh, it's really been downplayed within the media, but, and I'm not saying wind is bad, but I mean, it is a reality that if the wind does not blow and you have a crap ton of wind in your grid, you better have a backup. And that is certainly what has happened in parts of, definitely in the UK and in parts of Europe, not having enough wind in conjunction with hydropower being down in conjunction with not having enough natural gas. And it's a perfect storm of all this stuff together, which is driving everybody a little bit crazy, but that not even recognizing that and let alone the stuff that's going on in China, which I, I haven't heard so much on the wind side. Imagine that's a factor as well, but it's really, it's really more of a coal and, and hydro piece. And the, the repercussions for this are huge. I mean, the publicity on it has been done really poorly inside China from um, uh, South China Morning Post does a, a decent job in some of the coverage. And inside China's a couple podcasts ago, they were talking about the power outages in China. And they had mentioned that there are cities in China that have been without power since mid-August. And so we're in October now. This is months that people have been without power. And they actually mentioned that the, there was people have died uh, from carbon monoxide poisoning. I think it was 23 or 27 people died from carbon monoxide poisoning because they didn't have electricity for the detection. These are super, super serious things for not just rolling brownouts. These are blackouts. And after that rant, I will let you just sort of <laughs> give you the thoughts of uh, maybe the IEA report, if you've, if you've seen anything. And this sort of this this wind and energy crunch piece or this energy crunch piece is just um it's a little mind boggling to me the the lack of coverage it's gotten. So one of the things that that we when I when we decided to create the PE fund, it was trying to not only just complain about what we're seeing but also try to provide solutions. So one of the things that we've been saying from the beginning, and and not to say that we called Texas because we didn't, we just said that a Texas like event which was going to happen, it was inevitable. And the reason why we were saying that is because when you look at, uh, uh, you know, you, let's just use a wind farm for an example. So when you have a wind farm and you want to classify it as base load, you have to have a something to back it up. So in most cases, that's natural gas. So you have a peaker, which is intermittent, and you have an interruptible contract, which just means that I, I, I don't know how this wind is going to blow, but I'm going to assume it's going to blow. And if it won't, I will then pull from natural gas, but I'm just going to take whatever the current price is because I'm not going to get a firm contract because I don't want to waste money in case I don't need it. So the problem is when you have all of these wind farms going down at the same time, now in order to maintain the base load capacity that they're supposed to be picking up, you now have to pick up and turn on these what's called a peaker in order to provide the necessary power to the grid. So when you have this happening in a sweeping basis, you not only have the natural gas facilities that are normal base load, but now you have these peakers that are pulling harder and harder off, off the system. And the system really isn't built for this because you've been taking down a lot of your base load, whether that be coal, whether that be nuclear, in, in, in lieu and trying to create this green backdrop. So now when you look at these coal facilities and like when people keep talking about oil, the problem is, you know, even though in the U.S. it's cheap to run coal, you still need a facility to put it in. And we've torn right. down a lot of these facilities. So yep. even if we wanted to, there's nothing to turn back on because they're gone. And even now with some of them that are mothballed, what does it take to bring it back online? Well, you keep telling me that that I that coal's going away. So if I'm a laborer, why am I going to go work in a coal mine? Like what, you're telling me it's going to go away. So I'm going to go work in something that I may not have a job in a year, two years. Right. So then it becomes this this weird backdrop of, of of issues when you're looking at the coal situation and what the the um, renewables have done and what we've well, always another, said is that that not, can you just hold on. We were we are hundred percent going to do a follow up podcast, and I, unfortunately, I do have a meeting in like seven minutes, so I will have to close this. But um, can you break that natural gas component? So in the U.S., you said you you called, and I I think I I mean I was telling folks and clients that I I wasn't predicting the February thing by any means, but in terms of that, we had real risks to our grid in the U.S. for the first time that we didn't have 
previously just because of an aggressive adoption and really probably a not mm-hmm. thoughtful process of to how you're going to greenify this grid. Uh, that is something I think that that's certainly what's going on in Europe. But I have people who are that. So you have a, you have a natural gas combined cycle, ter, you know, facility, you have a natural gas facility that's you're producing power. You can run oil in that or most of them can. Right. And, and if they can, they are at least it, right. they are in Europe um, and they are in Asia. And I mean, for the U.S., if we your point about if the if these if you have coal and we can run it and it's available and everything, you're running it. Um, but if you're mothballing it, it's going to be hard to bring it up. And I would mm-hmm. say the same to an extent in China is that there's a number of factors for why, you know, they're saying things are problematic. Um, I think that it can sort of be summarized in that it isn't that they some of these guys tried to, they say it's about emissions. I think some of these guys were trying to, local provinces were trying to hit targets that yeah. the, the government maybe have set. And so they were reducing things at the end of the year. In but January. I, they set them in January for, right. for COP. So that's why it's like they were set arbitrarily and then they hit them. But when you look at like, you know, when you look at China, the issue is we, we've had flooding in some places, we've had right. droughts in others. So you just don't have the same type of repeatability in some of the hydro that they've learned or really come to rely on. And then you had facilities running exponentially harder in September, specifically ahead of Golden Week and to try to get in front of all of these shortages in the world where they were trying to get a lot of this stuff front loaded to get onto a boat. But when you look at at China now, that 4.9 number, I, I would laugh at it because I don't believe that as far as I can throw it. No, it's, a, it's, but, it's yeah. way too high. <laughs> But when you look at the situation, you know they they've taken down their new uh, imports uh, have have come down. They're now fully in contraction. New export orders are fully in contraction, which just means below fifty on the PMI scale. Right. So when you look at their economy, they're slowing exponentially, and there should be some uplift from that, just because they they won't have the same pull on the industrial side. And the NDRC finally uh, uh, finally married coal prices to electricity prices for the industrial consumer. So costs have continued to go up. And then the issue is between PPI or that producer price index versus consumer price index, because the consumer in China is getting just absolutely blown apart. And so that means that the producer has to pass it off somewhere else, which is where you start seeing those export prices yeah, and they go have, up. And they have, they have caps on this. And I think that's the other thing with, mm-hmm. uh, that's the other thing with the, with the UK is that, I mean, so you have, UK utility company is going under because they are not able to pass these costs along to the consumer. Right. And, um, and they are two, I mean, they have 14 just this year, two of the, one of them is a just recently sub- subsidiary BP. I mean, and this is serious because these are utility providers and UK has to come up with an alternative solution of how they're going to be providing this power. But for China, it is, people say this as well, capitalism hits socialism. And no, I, this isn't necessarily that this is where this is a, a, this is a top-down planned economy um, that's really, really messy. And it, it, this, when you're, you're, to your point, you pulled really hard on this coal, um, and mm-hmm. you can't. They can't pass those costs along to the consumer. They're, we're not. We don't know how healthy that consumer is. They want us to believe that the, the Chinese consumer is pretty healthy, and I think we're struggling to that 4.9 percent number. It was interesting because last night the data that was trickling out was like, oh, but retail sales are higher than expected, and 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 rural. And it was all these like rural farmer farming areas are those retail sales are high too. And I thought, really? Like not <laughs> shocking. Like, no, that 4.9% GDP number is if you believe that you're even close to 5% GDP growth in China, it's ridiculous. That's way too yeah. high. And the number of issues that's going on within that country are so profound. And the crackdown that's happening are so profound that taken together, it's, it, it's super, super messy. But the energy crisis is just, it's scary in that, I mean, we we don't you don't have the data and, and transparency and clarity. And we know literally hearing that we know people have been without power for months now. That's huge. And that th- that is impacting the economy. That is impacting mm-hmm. the consumer. That's impacting what people are doing. And that is because in certain areas that the sh- there is shortage of coal. I mean, you did have it's not a huge amount that you were importing from Australia, but it was enough that when you stop that and then you also did shut down local coal mines because of safety. And when we have these top down measures, I don't think people realize is that it's it's not a it's not a little scalpel. It's it's a hatchet. You know, it's like, oh, that re- that let's not go in and fix that that coal, that coal production facility. Let's just go. We'll just shut it down. And so they just right. shut it down. And if you do that too, if you do that too aggressively, then you end up in a situation where you're at now. And now if you've seen the media, they're opening up every, every coal mine in the world is going to be open up. So if you think that 
coal mining accidents are going to be going up as well because they're going to open up all these coal mines. They're going to let let this rip and they're going to try to produce as much as possible. And this is all in the face of, oh, but we're going to hit those emissions targets. That Those emissions targets are something, I mean, I, that's a whole separate podcast, but there's an incentive and reason they want to play in this ball ballgame um, uh, with the UN and with, with all these different organizations and especially COP26. And I mean, the incentive alone for just them producing wind and solar and selling it to the world I think is huge because they're the predominant right. manufacturers of that. Um, so to to be saying you're hitting these targets is one thing. Um, for the world to believe it is certainly another thing. Uh, absolutely, and, and that's where we're starting to see that pivot again. And and it, when when the premier said the the term at all costs, he was actually saying it in front of a coal mine that had been shuttered due to uh, due to safety issues. So when you look at what that was really referring to. It was more along the lines of human life and politics, because right after that statement happened, they started opening up all these mines, like you said, like make them as safe as possible, but we still need to open them. And then they started, they pulled down five Australian shipments within three days after that, that yep. famous uh, phrase was made. And the question is, you know, now you have, but then you had 72 mines go offline due to flooding, uh, yep. you know, that, that they're Which not trying huge, to bring those that back. flooding and people don't realize that there's a ton. It was massive. So the ones that you, your minds that you had running, you had a massive flood. You don't have yep. that. I mean, it just is the number of different things that have exacerbated this have been have been just exceptional. Um, mm -hmm. And then they they have they this is creating obviously those those thermal coal prices. You're seeing what over 120 dollars a ton. I mean, they're huge. That the price increases are huge. So it's impacting these uh, these manufacturers, which 70 percent of the the powers coal. So everybody's running on coal. And so if you're paying for this, it's huge. And if you can't pass this along, that's going to be really problematic. And the thing I want to close with, and we're, I'm, when this podcast closes, I'm going to schedule in another one because Mark and I need it. I think for just listeners needed to be chatting about this stuff. So we will certainly follow up with this, sure. with this China global energy crunch. Um, but I, I think this, the impact to the global economy is really, really profound. And it's, it scares me that, that's not what we hear when people talk about this stuff. It's not what I'm hearing. You know, it's it's not the takeaway. It's like, okay, well, China's slowing down. It's, it, you know, China slowing down is a really big deal. And mm -hmm. it's not that it's it, it's the second largest global economy in the world. Yes, is it? Do you have inflows and outflows like the U.S.? No. And they say, well, we can ring fence the Evergrande issue, which, by the way, that that's a whole separate thing. You can't. It, it it's one third of their economy, and I, you can. The government can come in and try to do all kinds of things, but it doesn't matter. The economy is slowing. We saw right. this in the 4.9% number. We know it's lower than that. So the Chinese economy is slowing, and we were at double digits growth a decade ago. So when you put that in context of this is slowing, and I think from an energy demand standpoint, that's going to slow to degree from a growth standpoint for crude oil. Not saying it's going to drop off a cliff by any means. I'm not not calling for a decline in um, an immediate decline in, in peak oil or anything, but I'm concerned that people, the oil community and the energy community is not appreciating that we can have a global slowdown in economic growth and we're, we're, our risks for recession are absolutely higher than they've ever been since mm -hmm. 2008. I, I mean, that, uh, that's what I talk about in my econ show as I try to shine lights of like, here's the data, here's what the data is saying, here's how bad that data is getting. Oh, it's, and here are the leading indicators. The leading indicators are getting worse. Oh, and then the current indicators are worsening. And then when you look at the the inflation index or surprise index, inflation is surprising to the upside as economic data is surprising to the downside. And it's right now, like the surprises are not negative. It's not like we're going, we're right now going into a recession, but it's, if, if people are predicting 3% growth, you know, the actual number's coming in at 1%. You know, if you're expecting, you know, this, it's coming in, you know, 10% below yep. that. And you're just seeing this, very steady slowdown. And that's where I look at, like, as you were pointing out with the demand side, like, I think when you look at what, the, you know, and, and I, I know I'll catch, catch, catch nonsense for this. When you look at the physical market, the physical market is telling you, like, it's not that tight. And there's a lot of barrels that are still sitting there struggling to find a home. But to your point, a lot of the, those natural barrel, their home is Asia and Asia is just not picking them up. The hope was, that as Golden Week ended, you were going to get a big increase in West African flow. 
and you just haven't seen it. And that's putting a little bit more concern in terms of where these barrels are going to go and I, what that market looks like I looking at Asia. I 100% agree. I think that tight, and I think that's where people have to, and we will close it with this. And um, well, I'm going to schedule follow up. So hopefully our listeners, the next podcast will just be going into this stuff. But I think the global market, I mean, the tightness of barrels, just because it's $83 WTI doesn't mean it's quite as tight. You have a, a nice ramp up. Traders do a lot. Um, mm -hmm. And I always say that $5, there's $5 on either side that you need to think of as traders moving it. And then you start needing to be thinking about the, the fundamental price and the technical price. And I think that the, the reality of crude switching or natural gas to crude, huge reality. Um, mm -hmm. And could be that number that freaked people out was 500,000 barrels a day estimate to 900,000 barrels a day, anywhere in that. I, and there, there are points of between now and, and through the winter where that could be um, easily you could be swapping out, um, uh, you know, an increased million barrels a day. That may not be completely consistent the whole time. Um, but it's or if you can, if you can swap out natural gas for crude oil, especially in Europe or Asia, given the prices that natural gas is at for them, you're 100% going to do it. Mm -hmm. um, and there, the IEA did have a really good chart in their monthly report that you have to pay a fortune for. Um, but it's a chart of just the percentage increases in price. And it's, it is insane in terms of uh, LNG, everything. That's like a thousand percent increase over the course of the years. It's huge. Um, so with that, Mark, I... I, we are going to follow up a call or we're going to follow up a, a podcast with this so the listeners get all this stuff. But I really, really want to thank you for your time. I appreciate it immensely. Um, and I, I know this this is a long, nerdy podcast, but I think it's going to be a lot of you. So I appreciate well, thank it. Thank you so much for having me. Absolutely. Thank you. Thank you.